1: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
2: I'm still reveling in and relishing an acute awe inaugurated by the images captured by the just wonderful space telescope in july as a big and beautiful conversation about our significance continues a persistent and particular train of thought has caught my attention we are so small something inside me bristles at the thought i don't want to be i don't want to be small it is true what we are consumed by rather pales in comparison in magnitude and significance when considering and attempting to calculate the vastness of a space beyond comprehension. However, I believe that our recognition of the awe points to an awe we know, an awe within us. We are made of the very stardust we have been so enchanted by. Part of what animates my awe, which I feel as a touch of divinity, is the disbelief that we have to be reminded so often of what we belong to. And I suspect that the language deployed to make us insignificant as we gaze at the stars has something to do with the dominant culture's denuding of our imaginations, which my guest today says requires an emotional athleticism. To help us reckon with our collective awe and our responsibility to harness our imaginations for the futures we deserve, I'm in conversation with Ahmed Best. Ahmed is a multi-hyphenate storyteller, artist, educator, and futurist, as well as an adjunct professor at USC School of Dramatic Arts and the Stanford D School. You may also know him as the actor who played Jar Jar Binks in Star Wars. We explore Afrofuturism as an imaginative framework that helps us work through current and oppressive realities in order to fashion a future worthy of us all. And the need for black people, especially, to take seriously the project of engaging with what Ahmed calls long futures. He reminds us that the oppressions so many of us live through now are the result of someone's imagination. If we are to have any chance of helping shape the future, we don't have the luxury of not thinking about it. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with Ahmed Best. I'm really happy that you've made time for me and for Busy Being Black listeners and that you responded to my call. I think the work that you're doing around Afrofuturism, around Afro rhythms is so enchanting and invigorating. And so I really appreciate you accepting this invitation to come on Busy Being Black and talk to me and Busy's listeners.
3: It's a pleasure to be here. Great to meet you. Great to be here. Great to be a part of this. How's your heart? My heart is great. Um, it is definitely uh healing. I'm I just I'm just getting over a bout of COVID, which has not been fun at all. And I have been so good at avoiding it. I was just super careful. I'm vaxxed, I'm boosted, I'm shaved, I'm you know, I'm I work out. I've been dodging COVID for the past few years and it finally caught up with me. So thankfully, I am done with it. And, you know, thus my heart has healed.
2: In looking at your work and at what you've chosen to focus on and put your energy in, I was struck by the synergies between your lived experience and mine. And particularly, I'm kind of very sensitive to the universe's synchronicity at the minute, right? And we're having this conversation in the wake of these wonderful awe-inspiring images that the just wonderful space telescope has returned to us and literally a couple days later um, someone was in my inbox saying you should interview Ahmed about Afrofuturism and I thought gosh how lucky right that I stand here completely awestruck and then someone emerges like you who is also tackling these big questions about what it means to be alive to be human and to look beyond where we currently are and that's not a question, but I perhaps I'd like to know how you feel in the wake of seeing the images returned to us by the just wonderful space telescope.
3: Well, I'm very passionate um, about space. Um, I'm a huge science fan. I'm a I'm a big fan of science fiction. Uh, physics and astronomy is kind of a first love. Uh, if I didn't end up doing what I'm doing now, I probably Would have gone that way, you know. I really loved physics and astronomy. I love being a very, very infinitesimally small part of this universe, and I revel in the smallness of it. I love the vastness of the universe. I love the vastness of space, and I don't think, you know, the micro is insignificant. As a matter of fact, you know a big tenet in Afrofuturism and, and African futurism is this idea that the micro affects the macro. So um, the reason why I just really love the smallness of it is because it keeps us open and it keeps us full of wonder. Mm. And I love being wondered. I love being amazed. And when the when the Webb telescope images came back and the vibrancy of the colors the magnificence of every single one of those bright spots being a galaxy, it really does what I think science and science fiction does really well, which is gives us hope. And the idea that we're looking into the past, like this light is just hitting this lens in this telescope, we are catching a glimpse of billions of years ago, right? And that in, in you know, we are corporeal beings trapped in this linear existence, that gives us this inkling and this insight into the fact that there is a future, and that future is as infinite as the universe. So I really believe in, in the beauty and the
2: wonder of those images, and it keeps me wanting to move forward. You know what's so interesting? I've been thinking about this for weeks, right? <laughs> I'm really laughing to myself because I can't believe I missed this. I, and I was kind of stuck on this fact that we are looking back, right? That what we see might not be there per se, right? That we're seeing something that we don't even know is even there, that it's technically the past. And I had m- made it about us, right? That, that Because that was the public conversation. Let me, Let me start this way. The public conversation largely became we're so small. But not in the small that you're talking about, not a small that expands or that allows room for wonder, but a small that makes us insignificant. And I took a real issue with that because I thought that if anything, we're looking to like we're part of the same stardust, like presumably we're of the thing we're so awestruck by. And what you've actually just made me just made clear, rather, is we're looking at a past as the future.
3: Yeah. I mean, if you think about us from the perspective of the light, right? Not as us looking out at the light, but as the light looking at us. The light is looking 4 billion years into the future. It sees us as its future, which not only is is revelatory in the, the idea of it, but it's also a challenge to us. What are we giving this light? How do we contribute to this light that is looking back at us? And are we a part, are we the part of this light that can be the light for the future that we will be looking at, you know? So there's more of a significance of our part in this as a collaborative entity on this planet when it comes to the future, if you're looking at it from the light's perspective. And I know this is a very abstract idea, you know? I'm an artist, I get to be abstract sometimes. Um, but it's a philosophical question that actually answers like what our position in the universe is. Right. And for each of us, it's going to be an individual different reason. Like we don't have to be a, we don't have to be a collective conscious. We're not the Borg, right. We're not, we're not, um, all connected completely. You know, we are all connected in the same ecosystem, but we don't have groupthink in a way where we're in each other's mind. So. All of our motivations will be different, all right? However, the question, the philosophical question that we can ask ourselves is, how are we contributing to the light that is looking at us?
2: I don't
3: know how to answer that. Yeah, neither do I. But it's something that I think about quite often, you know, because we are the micro that
2: affects the macro.
3: We are just as important as what we're looking at because what we're looking at is looking at us.
2: We need to almost confront and hold a different language to really understand. I'm thinking of Mary Oliver, right? Wild geese. And I have a one of the stanzas from Wild Geese Tattooed on My Stomach. You do not have to be good. And at the end of that poem, she says, you know, the wild geese are calling to you harsh and exciting, announcing your place among the family of things. Right. And so. When I saw the images, I thought of Mary Oliver. These images are announcing our place among the family of things. How do we situate ourselves in that majesty, in that wonder, in that awe? I don't think it's an opportunity for us to say we're not of it or that we become insignificant or small, but rather to figure out where within this constellation we fit. And so I love this prompt, this light prompt. How do we respond back to it? How do we illuminate back?
3: Yeah, we are a part of it, right? If you think about the microbes in our bodies, right? If you think about even like the microbiomes that break down our food that are in the large intestines, right? And that we're always talking about the probiotics to help this good bacteria. This bacteria is microscopic. You know, we can't see it, but it's working. We know it's something's happening in there. And each microscopic piece of bacteria in our bodies is helping the larger machine function, right? There are these small, tiny universes within us where all of these things are hacked. So when we talk about, you know, the star stuff that we are a part of, when it comes to the universe, we're the microbiome, we're the molecule, we're the unseen thing. But that doesn't mean we're not significant, right? We are working. Mm -hmm. our existence is a part of this universe and it matters regardless of how small it is.
2: Yeah. And it's not even like a, it's almost not even about size, right? Like we use the language of size. We say small, big, vast expanse, but that's almost like a misnomer, right? That's almost like a misleading language because what the example that you're offering, like the utility or the function of the microbe and the microorganisms is utterly essential and so the, the smallness of the thing doesn't represent the, the importance of the thing. That's right.
3: That's what I believe.
2: As someone, as an astronomer, as someone who looks to the stars in awe and tries to understand your place among it and, and who pursues science fiction and Afrofuturism and Afro-rhythms, which we'll get into, how are you helping the people around you have this conversation, particularly now in the wake of these images?
3: Well, one, the images help a lot. Because you know, human beings, we are very ocular, oral creatures, right? So pictures mean a big deal to us. Um, you know, we as organism opted for eyes. We have the same like olfactory senses as dogs, but we don't pay as much attention to those because we've abandoned all of those preconceived senses for our eyes. Those these are our most important. You know parts of our perception of the world as human beings. So when you, when you show these pictures, the pictures are just so awe-inspiring that they start the conversation, which is wonderful, right? And I, I'm going to say the word wonderful because I love that word, full of wonder. And that's, I, I live my life for the wonderful, you know? And you know, those, those images were just so wonderful because it just opens up your imagination and it opens up the possibilities. And and it's, it's amazing that human beings did that. And we can do those types of things, you know, we can engineer and construct and imagine these things that can capture these images and bring those images through the internet to a lot of people. You know, I think the bigger question, especially when we're talking about Black folk, is what does this mean to us, right? And how does this move us? And it's a challenging question because, you know, specifically when I talk about future and futurism and when I teach futures, you know, I teach at Stanford University and I teach at um, University of Southern California, and I, but I teach futures at Stanford and there aren't a lot of black students in my class and when i talk to black students about joining my class they don't see the relevance of it right because it's not helping them advance financially specifically in the world right they look at it as they look at it as something that is a bit superfluous in their education and it's a luxury and this happens a lot when we're talking about Black folks, thinking about the future, especially the far future, is a luxury that they can't afford. To wit, I will say, not thinking about the future, especially the far future, the long-distance future, is a luxury that we can't afford. Um, Because someone is, and... The someone that's thinking about it is the someone that is going to be able to define it. And the thing, that, mm. thing about the future that is so magical is the fact that we're creating it in the moment as we speak. And it comes out of speculation. It comes out of ideas. It comes out of hope. And though that speculation, those ideas, that idea of hope is so incredibly important to the evolution of not just our species, but the entire earth. And we as earth people, we as stewards of this planet, we as the custodial services of this planet, need to be thinking that far or we won't exist. And those folks who are thinking that far are dictating who gets to exist and in what state. And the reason why we have the climate change epidemic that we have, the reason why we have poverty and rampant inequality is because we, as the folks who are the victims of oppression, are not thinking about the long-term future in a way to create it
2: out of inequality. I love that you said exist. I'm I'm reading um jana brown's black utopias which has just been released and i'm, I'm only at the beginning so i i and I'm, I'm just at the beginning of my learning overall more broadly about utopias afrofuturism what have you you know Jaina brown makes very clear in the introduction that we black people don't actually exist according to the logic of the human right which builds on sylvia winter's um unearthing of the of the human as a fiction of the white man's imagination you know designed especially for his own advancement and his resting of his power away from the church. And so then we then have this, or we're living through this extended or protracted period of time, whereby black people are at once just trying to survive, right? Which is a noble pursuit. (laughs) Like, how do I survive? How do I make sure that my family, the people I love can eat and survive right now? That's noble. And at the same time, as you're saying, this necessary looking forward, right? Because this cannot be all there is. And we have to redefine what it means to be human as part of that process, right? Which I think is, is part of the scarier part of it all, right? That we would have to confront that as things are right now, we are ostensibly non-human.
3: Yeah. And, I, you know, we are feeling right now in, in this present moment, especially in our politics and in our social structures, we are feeling the push to get out of this box of oppression. What's happening right now is we as a collective consciousness are realizing that the confines of white supremacy and oppression are so incredibly small that it's not working for anyone. And we have to, we are pushing our way out of it. Let's take gender, for example. The idea of two biological genders is a relatively new idea, right? I would say that when Western science actually took over the globe and the Western scientific method took over the globe, compartmentalizing was the big part and organizing was a big part of what happened in the scientific community. Now, they could only organize to what they knew, right? They can only organize to what they knew or what they could glean, right, from the Greeks, pretty much, or the Romans, right? Which is why uh, everything that is identified and organized is either Latin-based or Greek-based, right, which includes biological gender. Male, female, right? Male of the species produces the sperm with the female's position, produces the egg indigenous cultures, African cultures, weren't organized with binomial genders. That's not how we were organized, right? Specifically like indigenous American peoples were multiple gendered, right? And the idea of multiple genders in society wasn't just accepted, it was expected. Most of the time, what they called multi spirit people were parts of government, right? Because multi spirit people could see more than one side. They could see all sides because they had all gendered experiences, right? So the idea of these two binary choices is a new idea created for control, right? It was created so you could oppress. Women do this and men do that. Now, when somebody has this idea, and all these are ideas, white supremacy is an idea, right? Oppression is an idea. Neoliberalism is an idea. You know, these are five, most of the time, cisgendered white males who got together and said, the world is going to be like this. And people are just going, okay. And (laughs) nobody said, uh stop this. But most of the time it came with so much murder and genocide and rape that everyone was so incredibly terrified not to do this, which rightfully so, you know, that's sociopathic behavior. But when it comes to gender, these binary choices were not choices in a lot of the world, in a lot of indigenous communities. Patriarchy were not choices in a lot of the world. We have a many matriarchal societies throughout history, even in the West, right? Celtics had matriarch societies. So the, the idea that we're put in this box is a box that is quite unnatural, right? Here's where the Afrofuturism comes in, right? And, and, and usually Afrofuturism is, is, encompasses indigenous futures as well. In Afrofuturism and in speculative fiction, We can imagine what 2022 would look like had we organized with the multi-spirit idea. So using these tools, we can imagine what the world would feel like had we been inclusive with the multiple gender thoughts and ideas and reality, right?
2: Where would we be? And this isn't, this isn't inclusive as we know it through the diversity, inc- equity, and inclusion industrial complex. No. We mean inclusive as in other knowledges, experiences towards a different future.
3: Yeah. We mean inclusive when it comes to earthling culture, right? Earth natural order. Multiple genders are in nature, right? It's not just human beings. Reptili- there are certain reptiles that are known to change their gender when there aren't enough of another gender in, the, in their society, right? They can flip. They're like, I'm going to be female and have eggs now, <laughs> right? You know, there are amphibians that do that. So non-binary gender is not in the natural world. Multiple genders are in the natural world, right? So we decided as an idea... In the West.
2: Right. And because non-binary, non-binary is a response to the imposition. Exactly. Right? It's to say, I, do, I, I, I don't subscribe to any of it, so I'm going to hold my ground in the middle. Yes. Or beyond.
3: It's a response to oppression. Right? We're pushing against the box of oppression. It's a response to it. Now, what we as Black folks have to do is stop responding. Right? We know, we know where we need to be. However, we are constantly fighting oppression. And true freedom is the ability to imagine without oppression. Imagine without oppression,
2: right? Do you mean imagine as in the act of imagining or imagine as in constitute in our mind a future that doesn't exist? All of the above. Okay. All of the above, right?
3: Right. Because when you can imagine a future, then you can build that through that imagination, right? Neoliberalism. Five guys decided, and then they made it, right? But that came from their imagination. In order for them to create, they had to imagine it first, right? But what do most of the time, when Black folks imagine, we go,
2: well, they'll never let us do that. Oh, I see. There's a censoring of the imagination.
3: We, have, we self-censor. We, we stop ourselves from really moving forward. Now, of course, there are the, the, the folks who don't do that, right? But I'm talking about en masse as a people, right? Which is why we don't talk about long futures because we feel the, the, the threat of oppression and we know the noble struggle of having to feed our families today. It arrests us from imagining those right. possible multiple futures and, and giving us the ability to build those futures.
2: My conversation with Ahmed best continues in just a moment.
1: It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? I'm Josh
2: Rivers, and you're listening to Busy Being Black. I'm in conversation with actor, educator, and futurist Ahmed Best. Together with Dr. Lonnie Brooks, Ahmed helps facilitate AfroRhythms from the Future, a collaborative, design-thinking, storytelling game that helps activate our radical imaginations by centering the experiences and wisdoms of Black people and BIPOC. To help us engage with the game, our friends at award-winning podcast, The Long Time Academy, have provided this week's bonus episode where you can hear Ahmed and Dr. Lani take longtime Academy host Ella Saltmarsh through the game. You'll find more information about the longtime Academy and Afro-Rhythms from the future in the show notes. And so we might say that a refusal to engage in, I love the word forward dawning, right, which I think encompasses all of this, right? A refusal to engage with the exercise of forward dawning or our imagination or, you know, thinking about the future deeply Is almost that abiding by the white supremacist structure in the first place, right? That's exactly what we're supposed to be doing is not thinking.
3: Yes. It's a harness for oppression. I'll give you an example. I, I, I attended a symposium for art in space, right? And of course, I was like the only Black dude in the world which most of the time I am, yeah. <laughs> you know? And we know how that feels and we, we have the ability to code switch so we can navigate these environments. But I was sitting listening to, you know, a room full of people that didn't look like me talking about launching art into orbit. Art. right? They
2: Art. They will put a piece which of Which needs art. to be engaged with. Yes. Okay.
3: They will put a piece of art on a rocket launch that rocket into orbit, open the bay doors and let that art out. And it just sits in orbit. And I was wondering,
2: just floats
3: floats around in orbit. And I was like, well, why are you doing this? And their response was, why not? I mean, we can. And so the frustration that I had was, how come I'm the only black person in this room? Right, And so then I try to bring this conversation to Black folks. And everybody's like, man, I ain't got time for that. Time for launching no art in this space. And I realize the limits of us sometimes. It's not the fact that you can do it. And it's not the fact that it's being done. It's the possibility of it. And then doing it right, it's the imagination process.
2: Yeah, and that, I imagine that's not limiting as a as an insult, right? Because there there are valid reasons, right? Like this is part of the <clears throat> there's and this I think Afrofuturism and and this futures conversation is of course it's a part of a much larger conversation, right? Which we've been touching upon. But that survival in the now becomes the primary focus, right? Totally. And that they're, you know, part of, I had a conversation with Olava Duwanja, who's a legal scholar and a black trans woman from Burundi living in Belgium. And she was talking about, you know, becoming black, right? Because in Burundi, she's not black, she's Burundian, right? Yeah. yeah. And yeah, yeah. that on on one hand, everyone's, she's a black trans woman. People are looking at her as if she's some imagined future, right? As if she's potential impossibility. Um, but also at the same time, she's trying to understand what it is to be black. And she's like, I also have to figure out, and part of, she said part of coming to blackness was learning how to love blackness, was learning how to love black people. And that so much of her ability to look forward was when she had settled into this idea, which I think was kind of um, helped along by, what a transpositionality does um, to one's psyche, physical presence in the world, but that she was then able to kind of launch beyond that, that, that initial barrier that, that an imposed blackness can erect.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's not about the pursuit of art in space. You know what I'm saying? It's not about that. No, but there is something to that thinking that could change everything. And if that thinking came from Black folks, en masse, the majority, the freedom that the, the, the universe could experience would be something that we have never seen before, right? And it would be something that would make all of us better if, if we weren't so in, in the quagmire of the day-to-day struggle, right, fighting out of this box of oppression. And that's what oppression does,
2: you know? Well, how have you learned then to hold, because I, I imagine people will be listening, right? And if you imagine that busy being Black listeners are predominantly queer Black people from across the world, living across the African continent, in Brazil, in Europe, in the US, in the UK, and they won't be new to imagining futures, right? Um, but they might find, they might have some questions, right, about this what may appear to be a jettisoning jettisoning of reality to pursue the future. So, but as a black man in America, you probably are best place to talk about how we hold these two things together. So how do you do it? Like, what is, is there a process? Is there a game? Is there a book? Is there a a ritual? Like, how do you engage with these, what can feel like these contradictory maybe endangering truths?
3: Yeah. um, Well, when I first I've always thought like this, even as a kid, Um, which is why I moved more towards art than I did science, right? Because I've always wanted to build worlds. I've always wanted to create realities. And um, because I don't have those reality building powers yet, I'll say yet, maybe in, in one of these, Days and omnipotent manifesting (laughs) somebody will i could be able to be a mutant and form world but
2: um that was so cool my god
3: that's why you know i'm i'm i grew up reading a lot of comic books i'm a comic book fanatic and you know one of my biggest one of my favorite comic books was fantastic four right because i always wanted to be reed richards because reed richards was an astrophysicist right but he was also like the smartest man on earth and everything. But he had a son named Franklin Richards and Franklin Richards was a reality warper. And I remember when I read that his son was a reality warper. I was like that, that's it. That's what I want to do. That's where I want to be. But I have no way of doing that yet.
2: Well, I would say, I would argue that art is a reality warper.
3: Exactly. That's why I became an artist. right? Because I always wanted to build these worlds. I wanted to always make these things, but in between action and cut you have to go back to where those worlds don't exist right and you have to deal with the world that you are in now and so i always had this bit of a frustration like you know i'm I'm, my nerd flag is about to go straight up but i'm a huge star trek fan
2: yeah
3: (laughs) yeah i'm the nerdy nerdiest star trek fan right And I was like, that's where I want to live And my future is like the federation. And so why can't we build the federation? Like what, what is it about humanity in this timeline that we're not pursuing this? We're not making this. And especially for Black folks, why don't we believe we can do this? You know, some of us do, but we are fighting an everyday fight to survive. So doing it is hard. uh, And Mm. I get that.
2: I'm I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm just thinking, I just wanted to quickly interject. I'm thinking of my conversation with Zinzi Minot. And she was saying that it's brave for Black people to imagine the future, right? It's an act of courage to, knowing all we know about our lived experience, for us to think we have any right, that we have any right to think that our existence is going to extend beyond our already clipped life expectancy, right? And so so how do you cultivate the type of bravery that Black people need to think, for the, think in the future? Well, this is
3: how I start. Every Black person on this planet is entitled to the future. The future is yours. It is not anyone's property to give you. It's yours and you're entitled to it and you're entitled to shape it as you see fit. Mm -hmm. There is no right or wrong. It's yours. That's how I usually start. And then I say the future isn't something that somebody gets to do all over you. Nobody gets to future all over you. You get your future. You have agency over your future. Every single person on this planet has agency over their future, right? That doesn't have a gender, that doesn't have a color, but that does have a spirit. That does have a spirit. And you have to know that deep in your bones that you are entitled to the future. You're entitled to it. And so that's how I get through that, right? You don't need courage for something you're entitled for. Now, it's one thing to know that, and it's another thing to believe that.
2: Yeah, because I didn't know I needed to hear that. And I was just like, my spirit was like, okay, you can do this.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you are. You're entitled to it. And, you know, I, 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 I teach filmmaking, and I teach world building, and... There are two places that you have to connect when you're doing this. There's your intellectual brain, your academic brain.
2: Which says Afrofuturism is a precarity and, you know, the replication of harmful systems instructors, yeah.
3: Absolutely, right? And that's the thing that we cultivate the most, unfortunately. We cultivate our intellectual brains. Too much. Where I come in is I connect your gut brain and your head brain, right? I want you to... Feel the future. I don't want you to just understand it, know it, imagine it. I want you to know what that feels like when you imagine it. I want you to know what that feels like when you're you're in it, when you know it, when you create it.
2: Have you had moments in your life where you've had that feeling where you've thought, oh, I'm making my future right now, or I have what it takes to create my future?
3: Tons, I mean, the the greatest thing about being an artist is that that's the feeling that you cultivate, you know? We're artists, we're especially performing artists. We're like emotional athletes. We need our emotions, we use our emotions for our work. So we exercise, you know, what I call the emotional engine. We are constantly turning over the emotional engine to make sure that it's there, to make sure that it works, to make sure that we can use it to help us move through our work and our creativity, right? And we all have it. We all know what an emotional engine is, right? Um, but as a professional, you know, performing artist, I'm able to call on it. It doesn't just happen, right? It doesn't just happen to me. I'm able to use it as a tool whenever I need it, right? And that takes a lot of training, takes a lot of training. And so I train that and I help people train that. And then I moved that into the future space, you know, and not just in the performing arts space. So I train future thinkers how to feel the future, right? I train you on how to get your imagination and your emotions talking to one another. So you create the future that you have agency over, you yeah. know? And that's what Afro-rhythms, that's where Afro-rhythms came in, you know, when we, when we created Afro-rhythms, that's what Afro-rhythms does. Afro-rhythms is a card game that gives you prompts in order to create and feel
2: the future. Can I just say this has been so brilliant and thank you. Um, in the course of my research about you, I came across an interview which was um, exceedingly moving. And it was moving for a lot of reasons, but two things stood out to me. One was that you, wanted, you said that you wanted to act because it gave you a way to disappear. Do you still feel the same way?
3: That's a really great question, Joshua. Um... What I meant by disappear was not so much me, but my ego. Okay. And what's wonderful about acting is you get to, and, you know, I learned this later on in my career, you get to find yourself in everyone that you play, right? But in order to do that, you have to leave your ego at the door. You have to you have to let your ego go, or or you're not being truthful. You're not being true to yourself. And the thing about audiences, you know, and and I love the word audience because it it derives from odd, which means to listen. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. Audiences Mm -hmm. listen deeply. And they know when you're not telling the truth. They know. Mm -hmm. They might not be able to articulate it in the most sophisticated ways as Twitter has shown us. But... (laughs) Yes, quite. Yeah. But (laughs) audiences know. Audiences know. And when you disappear, quote unquote, you're egoless. And you're getting to that deep place of truth um so that's what I meant by being by disappearing okay. you know I wanted I wanted to be a character actor you know which Jar Jar was so much you know I wanted to be a character actor I always wanted to be one of those actors who like you never knew their name but they were like you were like damn like everything they do is just Chris Cooper, right? Everything they do is amazing, right? So when when we say in the biz, disappear into the work is, it means like you don't see
2: Ahmed Best anymore. It's not about you, yeah. It's not about me. You see this character. And so does this egolessness, or sorry, is this egolessness an important part of imagination then?
3: For me, it is. Yeah. Right. Um, because you're not trying to make and this is I think a lot. I, I think a lot of. Um, future builders think this way, I am going to make
2: the world a better place. I'm Elon Musk. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah.
3: Like all ego.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Nobody asks the world. Right. You know what I'm saying? There's a beautiful indigenous saying that the Wendat people say. They were like, now we know the earth's words, meaning science. Now we have to learn her song. We have to learn the earth's song now. That's where we are in this time period. Because we've already used all her words. And now we have climate change. Now we have extreme poverty. Now we have the gap between, you know, the wealthy and the middle class growing, growing. We have all of these problems, right? Because we all want to make the world do what the world is supposed to do. But the world already knows what the world is supposed to do, right? Yeah. The world has been singing her song for generations, you know, 4.2 billion years, right? Now we have to be the audience and listen.
2: I was just thinking, we haven't been a very good audience. No, we have not. Can I knock something into your orbit? Absolutely. You probably know this, but if you don't, I'll be so enchanted to see your reaction. Speaking of songs, my favorite evolutionary fact is that Mm. humans have evolved to hear the sound of birdsong. So Mm. we have a discrete bandwidth between 2.5 and 5.5 kilohertz. And the only thing that in all of nature that matches that exact bandwidth is birdsong because birdsong indicates habitats prosperous to humans. That's right. Beautiful. That's part of the Earth's song, right? She's telling right. you if we were listening, if we were being a devoted audience, we would yeah. know that. We would know that. I mean, we do know it, right? We have that embodied knowledge. Like our, when we hear birdsong, there's something happens to us. We don't recognize what's happening, right?
3: This is why I love human beings. I love human beings. I really do. I love human beings because it's still in us. Even through all the bullshit, all the ego, all the destruction, we still have, and this is this is why emotional feeling the future is so important. We still have birdsong. We still know it, right? We still can feel it in us. It's been so dormant because we've been fighting so hard just to survive, which is why I say we're entitled to the future, right? We're entitled to it because we're built to move towards it in us. We know all the things, we know all the cues, we have it in our bodies. It's just been quiet, right? Now it's time to turn that volume, really listen to the songs.
2: Ahmed Best is a multi-hyphenate storyteller, artist, educator, and futurist, and teaches at the USC School of Dramatic Arts and the Stanford D School. In the show notes, you'll find more information about Ahmed and the game he helps facilitate with Dr. Lonnie Brooks, Aphorhythms from the Future. Busy Busy. Busy Being Black is an exploration and expression of queer liveliness, and my guests are those who have learned to live, love, and thrive at the intersection of their identities, your support of the show means the world. Please leave a rating and a review and share these conversations far and wide. As we continue to work towards futures worthy of us all, my hope is that as many of you as possible understand Busy Being Black as a soft, tender, and intellectually rigorous place for you all to land. Thank you to my friend Lazarus Lynch for creating the ancestral and enlivening Busy Being Black theme music. I'm so busy, busy.